I'd like you to open your Bible to the book of 1 Corinthians. Seeing as we have set aside the first Sunday of each month to observe the communion table, the cup and the bread, we do that traditionally here for the first of every month. At the church I grew up in, we did it every week, and which is fine. There's no set standard as to how often we take or observe communion. But it is important to know what it means and why we even do it at all. For me, we did it because it was traditional to do it. We took the little cup and the little piece of bread and we did that when I was a little boy. And when you got baptized in water, you were qualified to partake of communion. But quite frankly, I never really knew why. That's just the way we do things in the Christian church. I didn't know what the significance of communion was, what I was supposed to be thinking about, how I was supposed to be affected by the communion. We just did it. And we're going to do it today, but because it's Communion Sunday, I'd like to ask the question as a title. Why the communion table? Why do we do this? I think most of you already know. And if you don't really know theologically exactly, I'm sure you know somewhat accurately why you're doing it. But sometimes there are those who really want to know who really don't know, and God wants to show us. People have asked me, why do you repeat the same story so much? And when you get to that story the next time, you repeat all the details again. Because that might be the only tape some people ever listen to. It might be the only message that somebody came in here and heard at once. It might be the only time they've ever heard it. If I said, well, you all already know this. If I did that, I'd just stand up here and say, well, what I'm going to say today, you all have already heard. <laughs> so you all can go home. But there's always... The time when you meet that God chooses, when we meet together corporately like that, that God chooses to speak to us or to remind you of things you already know, to encourage you or to edify you or to pump up your faith, to give you that confidence that you have to make it through life and please the Lord. Now, in 1 Corinthians 11, concerning this communion table, Paul in 1 Corinthians is dealing with a lot of issues in the church at Corinth. And this was one of the ways he deals with issues. Now listen to this. Verse 17. Now in this I declare unto you, I praise you not that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. We're talking, you got homes to do that in, he said. For in eating, every one taketh before the other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. Let me stop and say this. The early church observed an agape feast. When they all, the whole church, by the whole church, in a community or town, there wasn't one large building where all those people met, so they had house churches. Elders in each one of those, or leaders in each of those house churches. Men who were qualified. The whole church would come together and have an agape meal. 
it was something that was to be harmonious, to show our togetherness and how we fit together and all of that. And during that meal, they would have the communion of the bread and the cup. That's what he's going to talk about. So they came together to eat without really being concerned about whether everybody was there or not, or whether those that did come had enough. There was no mingling, no fellowship. It was just one group here and maybe another group there and another group there, this side of town, this side of town, this bunch and that bunch. They were just little groups in a big area, which is not good, as we'll see in a minute. And verse 22, he said, what, have you not houses to eat in or drink? Or you despise the church of God and shame them that have none. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which I've also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death until he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat of this bread and drink of the cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, for this reason, many are weak and sickly among you, and some sleep. Many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the whole world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait one for another. And if any man doth hunger, let him eat at home. This is not a meal where we come to eat and see how much we can get. We have houses we do that in. But when you come together... It's the body we're talking about. Now, in this particular passages of Scripture here, this section, first of all, in verse 18, he deals with divisions, the body being divided. He said, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, separations among you. He said, I partly believe it. See, the principle of Christ's body, chapter 12, he'll say something about it. The principle is, like in verse 18, but now God has set the members, every one of them, in his body as it pleased him. I could say to you, your being here today is something God did. My being here is something God did. He brought us together. We made a choice to come here, but that choice was determined by the Lord before we made it. Because it's what pleases God, to put us, whoever we are, wherever we're from, to put us together in a place. And he said about that in verse 25, he said that there should be no schism or division in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. 
And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members honor with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members in particular. Now that's the way it's supposed to be. We're not supposed to be jealous, covetous, or envious of each other. We're not supposed to wish you had what somebody else had and be critical of each other. That's not what he does. That was a problem in this church. And the problem was so bad that the reason there wasn't any healing gifts working was because of this. That's what he said. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you and some sleep. I mean, that's been so disregarded down through the ages as a cause for problems in a church or physical problem that, that people reject it. But it is a cause. It is something that he pointed out specifically here. Go back to chapter 11, look at verse 19. He said, for there must be heresies among you. The word heresy simply means to choose. It's what makes us differ with each other. It's a choice. See, when we hold different views in the church or as a church, we have different views This is because we have chosen to hold different views. It's called heresy. We got denominations that have chosen to see things differently than other people do. And we're just satisfied with the fact that, look, we're all going the same place. And because we don't agree on a lot of things, it's no big deal. It might be. It might be because God didn't give us his word and the anointing of his spirit to teach us this word so that we could all disagree so that we could be at odds with each other, so that we could be Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Church of God, Lutheran, Church of God. He didn't give us that. None of that came from God. None of it. Not any of it. They all have truth. Didn't say that. Good people in all those churches, as good as any of us, if we're any good at all. But man has chosen to be separated from himself because he doesn't want to do things this way. He doesn't want to have to believe it that way. So he chooses not to believe that. Or he chooses to say, well, that doctrine was for another age. And therefore, he distances himself from what the Bible says. Now, our call is to teach a word. Isn't that right? Don't water it down. Don't turn from the left or to the right. Just say what the Bible says. It's a corrective word. It'll fix whatever's broken. It will cleanse you, in other words. It will purge us. If we'll receive it and take off our backgrounds and just let God do his work. Because if we don't do that, we'll come together and hold our own views and not really want to do much for that bunch or not be around them and and sort of separate ourselves. That's not good. That's not good. That's what he's dealing with here and showing the danger of it by talking about the communion. Talking about how we not gotten along. He said, there must be heresies among you. There's going to be people that disagree because in the same verse, he said, so that they which are approved might be known. Or you could say so that those who are not like that will stand out. People that are honorable. They have no ax to grind. I have no church to defend. If there's anything I'm going to defend at all, it's the faith. I'm going to contend earnestly for the faith. 
I have no name to attach to myself. We call ourselves Shelbyville Christian Assembly because, first of all, that's where we live, and the name is scriptural, and the church is scriptural. But we do that just to say that this is where we meet. This is who we are as we meet. But I hope you know that we are followers of Christ, and it doesn't matter what kind of name that you have. See, this word approved, we see it in 2 Timothy 3, 5. He said, study to show thyself what? Approved. In other words, as the word refines you, you let go of your little pet doctrines or whatever they are. You can agree with those you didn't once agree with. I remember years ago when I first got saved, my dear brother Cox, he was a Baptist and he was a good one. And being in a Christian church as I was, I didn't know much of anything, but he inspired me to study. Because every day I'd come home after church, I'd just go and get in my bed and the doorbell would ring and there he was wanting to talk. I wanted to talk about God and talk about the Bible. And he knew the Bible really well and I didn't. And he'd talk about eternal security. And I'd try to say that's not exactly right. Well, through the years, I've come to agree with him. I'm not a Baptist, but I'm not against them. But I'm certainly not promoting them. I just promote what I believe, that Jesus really does secure his own people. So, see, he inspired me. But I didn't say, oh, no, I'm never going to agree with him because that's not the way it works. If somebody has light that you don't have but you don't want to receive it, but you see it, you agree with them. That's just the way it works. We care for each other. We're a part of the same bunch. This is the way it works. We don't have the luxury of disagreeing with each other. And verse 5 said over here and verse 6 is said over here. We don't do that. But the problem in the church, now think of this. I don't know of anybody that would receive this. The problem in this situation here, and like in verse 17, he said, your coming together is not good. What do you mean it's not good? We do this every week. We come together as a body. We're going to sing and worship, and, and we're going to hear the word. And what did he say in verse 17? You're coming together. The whole bunch of you meeting together is really not good. Well, let me read it for you. Now, in this I declare unto you, I praise you not that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. How in this world could a minister of God say that a gathering of believers was not for the good, but for the worse? I would ask you, is that possible to be? That we could gather not for the better, but for the worse? Well, I'm just telling you what he said. Paul was an apostle. He had a heart for God. He was sent from God. He favored no man. He courted no man's favor. He sought no man's praise and advice. The kind of man God can use. He just simply said what the Lord gave him. Didn't lean to the left or the right. Told Timothy, in season, out of season, you just preach the word. You'll suffer for it because everybody that lives right will suffer for living right. But the end reward is greater than the suffering, so just preach the word. So he said, I don't praise you all for coming together. You're not coming together for the better. What good's coming out of all of this? If you're not changing, if you're holding to whatever is holding you back, 
What possible good can come out of meeting together? Oh, well, you would say God could convict. Yes, he could. He could do all that. He could convict you and you could change. Yes, of course. But that doesn't happen often enough or doesn't happen the way it should in some cases because after years and years and years of holding back, it's hard to go forward. Notice in that 17th verse again, he said, this is not for the good, but for the worse. Now, jump down to verse 27. He said, you're coming together. The problem that is shown is your indifference to each other. The indifference that is between you all. Verse 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now, for years, many people have always taken the word unworthily and measured themselves, uh, how worthy am I to part? None of us are that worthy. We're all here by invitation. Nobody could merit anything that God gives. But he said, what God has before us in the communion is a portrayal of a life that God sent that accomplished a divine purpose on the behalf of God's people. And when you meet around that, the focus is not your particular holiness as much as it is his particular sacrifice. We're all changing. We're all growing. We're all being cleansed. The process will continue to take place. If I did it because, well, I had a bad week and I'm not worthy to take these communion this week, we might not even need but one tray. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I don't think he's talking about unworthily as an adverb, but as something that has reference to the manner of observing this ordinance. And it's not about your personal qualifications. It's about your attitude towards other people. It's how you see your brothers and your sisters, how you view them. And then how you act towards them, how you treat people. You're doing that wrong. You're setting people out of your life and keeping people out of your little circle. Who may God want them to minister something to you, but you don't want anything to do with them. You're leaving people out. That's not a good attitude for anybody to take communion in. You see, the communion is not about you. It's about Jesus. And your relationship to him doesn't make you better than anybody. Because anybody that is in Christ is as good as you are. And everybody that he has chosen, he was chosen by God the same way he chose you. Not on your merits, but because he loved you. And we have no right to unlove whom he loves. Whoever he loves. Who am I to say, oh, no, I don't want. Is Christ in you? Are you in Christ? Is there such a thing as Christ being in you? Could it be possible that the very nature of God is lodged in you? And if that one God sovereignly selected and picked who he wants to be his children, do I have a right to reject them? Oh, but we're so different. <laughs> no joke. Different. We're hugely different. But the one thing that we have in common is Christ. 
We got to get back to that. Or you have to go to that. How do I personally relate to Jesus Christ? I relate to him on the basis of his call. He chose me. I didn't choose him. He changes me. I can't change him. He gave to me. I have nothing to offer him. He brought me to him. Remember the song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. What did he do? And everybody he brought to him, he cleansed them of that same stinking sin. None of us deserve to be here. None of us could do anything to be good enough to be in Christ. We're all here because a loving God picked us out of that vile lifestyle we live, brought us up, cleansed us, and made us his own. And Paul will tell us who then that he has chosen has a right to reject anybody else he has chosen. The same God that's in you is the same God that's in them. And he said, as long as the church lives divided, its meeting is not for the better, but for the worse. Could that be possible? Could underlying years of difficulty in the church and lack of and no power and no might and no drive and no, could it be because of that? That we have allowed intolerance and division and schism and separate views to be in the church so many years that we can't have unity? And is the lack of unity a lack of the move of God? On the day of Pentecost, they were all together in one place, in one accord, and the church began. And God added thousands to it until it began to fight and argue. And then we get all the stories of the struggle and the, and the things about the church there. But God is showing these people in Corinth, you folks are not doing as well as you should. Look, you've got prophets in your church. You've got apostles in your church. You've got an apostle, which was him, that organized, started, and was used to get this church going. You come behind, he said in chapter 1, he said, you come behind in no gift. But those gifts are limited by attitudes. Just because gifts of healing are in the church doesn't mean the people get healed. He said, for this cause, many are weak and sickly among you and some sleep. What was the cause? You're not discerning the Lord's body. You're not seeing what God has and put you in. You're seeing yourself as a little judge and jury of that body or a little separator from what you don't like in that body. I think I'll go to another church. I don't like this one. That's not scriptural. Where he puts you. It's where he plants you. Where he plants you is where you grow. Where you grow is where you bloom. That's just the way it works. You're not allowed to have your distinctly different views from everybody else. If you're right, then you need to declare you're right in a way that can be discussed and shared, and then we'll deal with it. But to just fold your arms and say, I ain't having none of that. None of that tongues talking and none of that healing and none of that. Uh, I don't want any part of that. Who told you you could do that? Who said you have the liberty as a Christian to have such views? That's heresy. It's divisive. It separates you from other people. 
It's the cause of wars and skirmishes amongst you. And this is why, as Galatians said, you bite and devour each other. And nobody wins. And James said, you know, the tongue is such a little member, but with it you destroy each other. So I think he's talking to us as well as whoever wants to hear it about the problem that keeps the church from being what it is. The communion table is pure unity between God and his son Jesus and all of those who have like precious faith who are joined to him. But if we divide ourselves, and I'm not saying we are here, I'm just saying this is the message. If we divide ourselves and separate ourselves from each other, then we're cutting off the very power that we need. We're going to limit things. Turn to chapter 1. Keep your finger in chapter 11 because we're going to come right back to it. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me just show you some of the issues that Paul was dealing with in Corinth. First of all, this issue of being separated in little groups in the church. Verse 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. Wow, we're used to that never going to happen. But he said, I want you all to speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Is it possible? Well, that's what the Bible declares that makes a church body what a church body ought to be. This is how it becomes everything we read about. It's when all the people that God put in it have the same mind and the same care, speak the same word, striving for the unity of the faith, perfectly joined together. Nobody rejected. Nobody put out. Nobody left out. Wow. Verse 11, for it has been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are the house of Chloe, that there are contentions or strife among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ. He said in verse 13, as we would say to the world today, is Jesus divided? Is there truly a Baptist Jesus, a Methodist Jesus, an independent Jesus? Is he divided? Did he put such a name on himself? No. Where did all this happen? I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of this and I'm of that. In the city of Corinth, we are those at corner back here. We follow Apollos, but we follow Paul. He's the apostle. Well, Cephas back here, you know, he walked on the water. We got the miracle section back here. And Apollo, you know, he's a theologian. He's smarter than everybody else. And everybody's bragging about what they got, I would think. And everybody's promoting their own little section. If they get a little church built, they put the biggest sign they can on there with a name of something on it. So this is who we are. Well, the one across the street said, we'll get a sign just as big and say, well, this is who we are. Would they ever get along and get together? No, I doubt it. And so he said in verse 12, he said, 
Those of you that say, I'm of Paul and I'm of Paulos and I'm of Christ, he said, is Jesus divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Look in chapter 3. Who started all this? Chapter 3, here's what it comes to. Maybe another indication as to why the modern church today isn't doing well. It has to be busy to convince itself it's doing well. But maybe this is the problem. And I, brethren, cannot speak unto you as unto spiritual or spiritual men, but as unto carnal. Oh, boy. Now we got a verse that says you're coming together for the worst, and now the same preacher said you're carnal. Oh, did he say that? Even as unto babes in Christ. He said, I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to hear it. Neither yet now are you able. I can't preach to you the deeper things of God. Not only can you not sit there that long, not only are you unwilling to listen that long and pay attention, but you have no appetite for it. You don't want much of anything other than just go to church, have a nice short meeting, and then let us go home and leave us alone. That's not Christianity. He said, for you're yet carnal, verse 3. For where there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk like mere men? For while one says, I'm a Paul, and another says, well, I'm of Apollos, he says, you're carnal. Who do you think Paul and Apollos and all these world-renowned people are that you're following? They're nothing more than ministers of God. They could do nothing unless they were anointed to do something. You could take somebody hugely intelligent and let them try to preach and pastor a church. It wouldn't happen. It wouldn't work. Because so much of what God has to say is going to be rejected, just like today in the church. The church is not glad about the whole counsel of God. I don't think it is. I can't prove that, but I don't think it is. A little Christian church I grew up in, you know, you got baptized. It's communion and water baptism. A lady on the plane one time, I was headed somewhere. And she saw this ring on my finger said, Jesus is Lord. She said, what does that ring say? And I said, Jesus is Lord. She said, are you a Christian? I said, I am. Well, what church you go to? And I said, well, we don't have a name. We're independent. We just call it this or that, but it's not affiliated. Well, what do you believe? Well, why'd I sit here? <laughs> I'm not one that likes to just chatter with strangers like that, unless there's something of God there, but I didn't know if this was or not. And I said, well, I don't know if I could tell you in a few minutes what I believe. I'd like to say I believe what the Bible says as much as I understand it. She said, well, like what? I said, well, you know, we believe in this and believe in that. And then I got through. She said, well, it's strange. I never heard you say anything about communion or water baptism. And I said, Church of Christ. Sure enough. And she wanted to debate that. And I thought, lady... I wouldn't dignify this trip with a debate, not in this airplane and not with you. I'm just not going to do that. I think I finally said, well, I think I'll take a nap. 
anything to cut the... I'm talking about today. That's just an, in an airplane, two people in a seat, sort of a picture of Christianity today. We can't get along because we can't agree. And if you tell them there's more to what you should believe than what you just said, they would be offended by it. Oh, I guess you think I have to do that. Oh, I guess you think I'm going to hell if I don't do it. You're missing the whole point. God has given you a word to liberate you. A word that you can humble yourself to during the time of communion and with utmost gratefulness you can actually bow your head and say thank you to the one who made it possible for you to be on your journey to heaven. And you got no right on this journey to look down at anybody else who God put on this journey. Who are we going to fight over? The Bible? We can contend earnestly for the faith. If I think I'm right, I'm going to say I believe I'm right. If somebody wants to argue and debate that and they're not interested in knowing the truth, I'm not going to waste my time. I grew up debating. That brother used to come to my house on Sunday morning. We talked and yelled and hollered and debated. It was good for me because it made me study because I hate to lose. So I wanted to study. Maybe the wrong reason, but in the process of doing it, God opened my eyes to see some things, and I humbled myself to that, and I said, well, you know, he's right. He's right. I need to see that myself, and I did. But he said here in 1 Corinthians 1, he said, that, you know, you are carnal. You're a bunch of babies. You can't take much teaching because you don't want to learn. You like your little groups you're in. You like your little separations in the church. I don't know that anybody's ever going to change it. But for this reason, that's the cause of many are weak and sickly among you because your attitude towards other people. Look in chapter 5. Chapter 5 was a picture there of fornication. A man had his father's wife. And they were tolerating that because, you know, this age of tolerance, you're in it now. Well, come on, we can't save them if we run them off. How are we going to get them in heaven if we tell them to leave? So you just permit that. They can live together. They can fornicate and do whatever they want to together, and we're not supposed to say anything about it? Where's the purity of the church? How do you purge out stuff like that? He said here, verse 6, you're glorying about your church. They're still doing it. It's not good. You know why? Because stuff like this is happening. And he said, a little leaven. Leaven's a whole lump. Years ago, out in the country where I lived, I was told a story about two people that lived on the same road that I lived on. It wouldn't speak to each other anymore. They were both deacons in the same church, and they would not speak to each other over, I guess, a business deal. Now, if you think there's going to be any power movement in that church that allows that to exist and doesn't do anything at all about it, you got another thought coming. He said a little leaven, leaven's a whole lump. He told him verse 11 in that chapter, he said, don't keep company with people that do stuff like that. Don't have anything to do with them. Not that they can't be fixed, they certainly can. But while they're doing that, you can't be a part of them, what they're doing, or they can be a part of what you're doing. Look at chapter 6, verse 7. Now, therefore, there is utterly a 
fault among you because you go to law one with another. Now you're using the courts to solve your problems amongst the two of you. Why do you not rather take wrong? And why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Oh, not in this age, not today. Uh Uh-uh, ain't nobody going to do that to me. Paul said, why don't you just turn the other cheek? If they want this, why don't you just give them that? Why do you want to go and expose this thing out in the open? Listen to this. No, he said, you do wrong. And you defraud. And that, your brethren. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Then he refers back to verse 5, neither fornicators and so forth. You don't go to heaven living like that. You can't tolerate it because it is something that's wrong. You want to be judged, you leave it in there. God will judge it. He'll just withdraw his powerful presence. Then all we have is a dead meeting on a dead Sunday twice or four times a month. It's just church. It doesn't mean anything. Lives aren't really changing. We're just existing and we add that to our existence. There's more to it than that, folks. Look in chapter 8. It said, you have an eating meats offered to idols. Well, I'm free. I can eat the ears off of a bunny rabbit, all them chocolate rabbits. I'm free. I'm free. Well, I am too. Could I eat meat offered to idols? If you weren't around, I could. You say, I'm free. Well, I don't know that I would. What if you say, I like a bud every now and then. You know, I'll take a a good bud dumber once or twice a month. Probably uh, okay, something to do. I'm free. The Bible doesn't say anything about drinking beer. Not a verse in there about it. Talks about strong drink. Beer's not exactly strong. It gets that way after a while, I think. But I'm free. Well, let me say this. Verse, Verse 10. Chapter 8, he said, For if any man see you which has knowledge, has been taught, sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? Well, the man obviously was free. Paul said he was free. But he said, I would never let my liberty become your stumbling block. If washing my car on Sunday would make you stumble, I won't do it. Because being in the body of Christ, I am careful to be responsible with my personality, with my conduct to everybody in this room. Did you know we're all connected? And that God helped me not to make you stumble or make you get it wrong. Or to preach one thing and then do something else. Now, I know we're not perfect and we're growing, but we should all be obligated to God to live in such a way that we promote our brothers or our sisters. You read Romans 14. He said, him that is weak in the faith, receive, but not to doubtful disputations. He goes on to say, one man believes he can eat anything. Another man says, oh, you can't eat that. One man believes that he can do this on the Sabbath day, but oh no, you can't do that. So you just have to be careful that while a man is growing where he is, that you don't offend each other as much as you can, as much as lieth in you as possible. 
Why? Because we're a part of each other. I don't want to cause you to stumble. I don't want you to cause me to stumble. If I was to walk down a street, an open street, and I saw you sitting in a bar and you were drinking a beer, I would probably say, what? What are you doing? What's wrong with this? Technically nothing. If your plane went down in some remote island in the South Pacific and you were the only survivor and you had a case of Bud Dumber fell out there, didn't have anything to drink and you drank one of them, I'm sure, I'm sure it'd be all right. Nobody would see you. You wouldn't have to tell everything you did. God wouldn't be offended. They drank wine in the early church. In fact, it says some of them were drunken, didn't it? Well, how can that be? Well, they didn't have Mad Dog 2020 in those days. I don't think they were <laughs> Mogan David, Mad Dog. I don't think they were drinking that. See, the word oinos, the Greek word from which we get wine, can also be juice, can also be jam. It's just a word that covers the fruit of the vine in its various forms. If you leave the fruit of the vine alone long enough, it gets a little hard, just like apple cider will. And when it gets hard and it kind of bubbles, the Bible said, be careful. And that's what they drank. The water wasn't as good as the wine. The wine was natural and pure. The water wasn't. Paul told Timothy, he said, take a little wine for your often infirmity's sake. Well, maybe it was just grape juice that he was drinking, or maybe it was wine. That doesn't mean we can go out and load us up a shelf full of the, what's on sale at Kroger's. That's not even necessary. I don't need that. You don't need that. We don't need that. That shouldn't be our testimony to a stranger or somebody else in town. You and I both, we all want our conduct and the report about us to be good and clean, that we're different. We live a separated life. Why? Because of Christ. He separated us from the world when he called us to himself. He wants us to follow him. So he talks about those that eat meats. He said, you don't have to eat that stuff. Don't let your liberty be the cause of somebody stumbling. Whether it's meat to idols or anything else that you do. The point of it is that I believe he's pointing out in here is that your lifestyle does not aid or promote those around you in the church. You're so independent and different. The guys that I used to meet with years ago, that's what they said about me. Well, he's an independent now. And from what they were saying, yes. Because the difference was they had a little regard for biblical accuracy. And that to me was just the way it's got to be. You got to live this way. And you may not see it that way. I'll give you plenty of room. I try to do that here. You got a chance to grow. You're going to make a mistake. We know that. We all have. Therefore, we have a certain amount of tolerance for those that are grown, but we do want you to learn. And if you're going to be here, grow here, okay? There's nothing wrong with that. But he's talking to the church about all these kind of things. He said, see, our rejection, our indifference toward each other does not show we are loving people. In fact, well, let me let you read it for yourself. Turn to, put your finger there again. Turn to 1 John Chapter 3, 1 John, chapter 3. 
Let's go to verse 14. We know that we have passed from death unto life because, because we love the brothers. Love, L-O-V-E, because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abides in what? Death. What if your brother happened to be Hispanic or black or yellow, faded more than white people are? What if it was somebody of a different nationality? I remember a fellow I used to run around with was in World War II. He fought on some of the islands against the Japanese, and he had a real problem any time he saw Japanese people because he saw what they did to his people, and all he could think of around them was, hmm. When you become a Christian, that may be with you when you become a Christian, but I promise you, God will deal with you about that, and you've got to let go of that. And the only way you can let go of that is usually when one of them joins the church and wants to sit by you, and then you get to overcome, and that's the way you're going to grow. But he said in, again in 1 John 3, Verse 16, hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we must also lay down our lives for who? our brothers. We're together. But whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his heart of compassion from him, how's the love of God dwell in that person? You've got to care about each other. That's why you write those notes. That's why you make that brief phone call, or write a brief note, just touching Base with somebody say, I am thinking about you. I care about you. Can I do anything for you? And then in the back of your room, you're in there praying. That's just a part of what your Savior, our Redeemer, does inside of us towards others. He makes you a channel of his grace and his mercy to other people. You got to care. And then also in chapter 4, and verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God. That being said, look at verse 20. If a man say, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? This commandment have we from the beginning, that he who loveth God love his brother also. What do we do with that as a church? Corinth, you Corinthians, what are you going to do with these things that John wrote? He said in John 13, while he was washing of feet, he said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. You know what it is? If you have love one for another. If we don't have love one for another, the world will know about it and they'll talk about you like, yeah, well, they're, you know, they don't pay the bills, they don't treat each other well, and you know, they fight all the time and split and carry on. It's never to be like that. Church has lost its power, I think it's lost its touch. Because it's allowed itself to be divided, to be distracted, to be militant to be adverse to other people. So therefore he said, don't come to the communion table 
with an attitude against other people and think that by partaking of Christ, you are honoring him. He said, if you do this in an unworthy manner, unworthily. So I think that's what he's talking about, the whole church, your attitude. If you do this in an unworthy manner, he says you're guilty of the very thing that put Christ on the cross in the first place. This is the very reason he came. People that act like us are sinners. People that do stuff like that are just people who live in sin. That's why Christ came, to save sinners. And we keep doing that kind of stuff. We're guilty of the very thing that put him on the cross. The very reason he shed his blood is because of that. You're not discerning. Look at 11 and 27. What a verse of scripture. Chapter 11 and verse 27. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you. And he said, if we're not discerning the Lord's body in verse 29, the last part of that. If we're not discerning the Lord's body, listen to me. This is very serious. If we're not discerning the Lord's body as we come together for communion, then we're in trouble. And what we do, it's not for good, it's for worse. See, discerning means seeing. It's a word which means to see both sides, to see. This church is not about me. It's not about you. It's not about a person or a little group. It's about us. We are unworthy, unacceptable people who came to the Lord, who sovereignly, divinely accepted us. We didn't accept him. He accepted us. And he brought us to himself with our heads bowed, our hearts broken because of our sin, the sorrow of our past. And he brought us to himself. And he says, I'm going to change your life. I'm going to make new creatures out of you. All your hangups are going to go. All your problems are going to go. All your foolishness is going to go. I'm going to make you the kind of person that I can say at the end, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now, along the way, when you begin dragging your feet and you're unwilling to admit that what you've been taught is right and you begin to draw back from that and you just want to argue with others in the church about he said if you would judge yourself didn't he go on to say if you would judge yourself you wouldn't be judged well then when are we judged he said you are judged when you are chastened of the Lord that's something that God does to correct you Let me say it again. Chastening, chastening from the Lord is to correct you. It's not judgment. It's chastening. It's corrective. It may be difficult. It may be harsh. In many ways, God can get your attention, but he gets your attention to correct you. And the reason God corrects you and not everybody else is because he doesn't want to condemn you in the judgment bar. He corrects you now, you repent, I'm sorry, Lord, and you turn around and you, and you begin living your life the way he wants you to. If he doesn't chasten people that are wrong, what happens to them? They get a just recompense of reward. God is under no obligation to change anybody. Then why would he change us? And when we have this vile attitude or this cocky, indifferent, or judgmental attitude, 
Why would he single us out to change us? Because he doesn't want to judge you. He wants to do that work that makes you say, yes, Lord, I'm sorry. And then your life changes. You begin to do what's honorable. Otherwise, you're going to be condemned along with the whole world that acts that way. Amen. Like John wrote, be not deceived. He that does righteousness is righteous. You can't do righteousness unless God anoints it. And when you draw back, you get upset over something and you start fighting. God has a way of getting to you. And boy, there you are and you're humbled. He runs you through the machine. He breaks your heart. You come out on the other side, Lord, I'm sorry. You go to the person you hurt, which probably caused the chest. I'm saying, I'm sorry. I was totally wrong. You were totally right. I ask you to forgive me. God, help me do better. Now you be acting like a Christian. You know why you're acting like a Christian? Because God chastens you. That's why. That's why. If he doesn't and he leaves us alone, then in the end, he will have to judge us. I'm pretty sure the Bible still says that. Verse 32, but when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. God doesn't chasten the world. He chastens whom he loves. Whom he loves, he chastens. Not the world. But us. Now having said that, what did Paul mean back to the communion? He had a revelation of the communion. What did he mean when he said, I received of the Lord the same thing which I delivered unto you, that the night the Lord was betrayed to What is that all about? Think of it. In light of all the things in 1 Corinthians that was going on in that church, Paul said, now, I've had to deal with this and this and this and this. You're wrong there. You're acting wrong here. You're doing wrong here, and you're allowing this in the church now. The night that Jesus was betrayed, because when you all come together, you're not doing well. You're coming together for the worse. Now, here's where it ought to be. When Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and he took the cup, and he said, do this how? That's what we're getting ready to do in just a minute. We're going to stop our day, stop our moment and space of time we're in now, and we're going to remember him and what he did. There's two things there that we think about along with one other thing. One is his body and the other is his blood. Now I ask you, what is the significance of eating his flesh or partaking of his body? Put your finger in 1 Corinthians 11, John 6, in verse 32, then Jesus said unto them, Verily I said unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. Now what is the true bread? It's Jesus, isn't it? Amen. Jesus is the bread. Verse 33, For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then they said unto him, Lord, Evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, he said, I am 
the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Verse 48, I am that bread of life. Your father did eat the manna in the wilderness, and he died. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and never die. When you think of eat, think of partake of. Bring unto yourself. Think of this. Verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. The bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Verse 58, this is that bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead, but he that eateth of this bread shall live forever. Obviously, the bread of heaven is Jesus Christ. He comes to us in a picture in figurative language as a loaf of bread, something that can be partaken of. Are you with me? And on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus said he took bread. What did he do with it? He took this bread and he said, this is what? My body. He didn't say this is my flesh. He said this bread represents my body even as the grape juice in the cup represents my blood. Because he called it the fruit of the vine in Matthew 26. He said it's called the fruit of the vine. But he took that loaf of bread and he broke it. And he gave it to them and he said, take this and eat it. Eat all of it. Just as he said, take the cup and drink all of it. He said, eat this. And they all took it and broke off a piece of it and they ate it. Now let me ask you a question. The men that were in that room that ate that loaf was that loaf of bread still in that room? It was still in the room. Well, where was it? You can't see it now, can you? Where was that bread? It was in those that ate it, in those who partook of it. The bread was still here. The one common bond between those men in that upper room was that bread. The one common bond amongst us in this room is Jesus. The one thing that we can all come to equally is Christ. Nobody got more bread. Nobody got less bread. In fact, children's bread could amount to just a crumb. But the bread, the loaf, was still in the room. And they ate it. They swallowed it. That bread became a part of their flesh, didn't it? They will digest that. And the picture is the presence of the indwelling Christ, the divine nature that is lodged in you, that alone connects us all. We're not connected by money. We're not connected by fame, fortune, notoriety. We're connected here today by one thing, and that one thing is Jesus Christ. Christ in me is a hope of glory, and you can say that too. You have as much right to him as I do. I have as much right to him as you do. The same promise he made to you, he made to me. Therefore, we're connected by one common 
experience. We're all equal. In fact, you'll like this. If you don't like this, you can leave and go home right now. Turn to chapter 10. Don't let them out. Chapter 10. Look at verse 16. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Communion means koinonia. It's the fellowship, the sharing. Is it not the fellowship of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break. Is it not the sharing of the body of Christ? That's what we're going to do. For we being many are one what? Uh-oh. We being many here are what? One what? One what? Bread. And one body. Is the bread then likened to the body? It is. The head of the body is Christ. In every part of the body of Christ is the indwelling Christ. That's the one common experience, the one common union that we all have. He said, for we are all partakers of that one bread. What a verse of scripture. We are all partakers of that one bread. Therefore, harmony and unity amongst us is based on the one similar experience that we've all had. We've been born again. We've been brought to Christ. We are together. We're called brothers and sisters in Christ. The prayer of Jesus, his high priestly prayer in John 17 and verse 21, he says, Father, I have given them thy word. Now listen, that they all may be one. I have given them myself, me, that they all may be one. And he goes on to say, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. It's inside. It's something on the outside placed on the inside that bonds us together. And it's Jesus, not a denominational Jesus, but a loving Savior who prepared for himself a body, indwelt that body, tabernacled through this world in that body, lived above sin, was able to present himself without spot to God, acceptable to the Almighty God for one reason, to cleanse and to forgive sinners from their sins. That's all he did. You had God, you had man. Man was separated from God from the Garden of Eden. I don't want to go there. We'll be here for a long time. But he was separated in the garden. Only way he could even have any approach to God was through rules and regulations. The very thing the devil used to slay mankind was laws and rules and regulations. The strength of, of sin is in the law. I'm trying to stay away. How many laws did Adam and Eve have? One. How many opportunities did the devil have? One. And he distorted that. But he's a liar from the beginning. And so man sinned. And when man sinned, all of creation fell into a sinful state. 
The devil had mastery over men as much as God would allow him. So we come down to the time when Jesus offered himself without spot to God. And he went to the cross as a lamb, the lamb of God, prepared for slaughter. And they killed him for one reason. So me and you can be forgiven of our sins and me and you can be brought together and me and you commonly appreciate and love our Savior for what he did for us. And to put all things aside that would interfere with his rule over us and give ourselves to him. What about his blood? We know his blood very well, but there's a lot of teaching in the Bible about the blood. We just know this, that the blood of bulls and goats could not cleanse from sin. We know that Ephesians 1, we were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without spot, without blemish. The life of flesh, Leviticus 17, tells us that the life of a human being is in the blood. When the blood is spilled or shed, as it's called, the shedding of blood, when the blood is shed, the life goes out of the flesh. And the body goes back to the very elements from which it was made, the dust of the earth. God formed it that way. The spirit goes back to God. And God has ordained that the only sacrifice that is right is the sacrifice which includes blood. Life for life. Not vegetables for life, but a living, breathing animal in the Old Testament for the life of a human being. They had to use animals. God was showing us something. An animal cannot redeem me, but in type, it shed its blood. And the little lamb on the Passover the little lamb that was kept in the home for a while, and the kids got the loving on and played on. That little lamb was killed, and they had to hold it while it convulsed. And all the blood of that lamb went into a basin, and the blood over the doorpost is what saved them from the destroyer. And it still does today. The power of the blood of Jesus is wonderful and amazing. And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. It has been shed, and we are to be reminded of it. Now in closing, one other thing about the body of Christ that refers to healing, Matthew 8, 16 and 17. In his own body, he bore our pains and he carried our diseases. The Bible says that. It says he bare in Matthew 8 and quoting Isaiah 53, he bare our sicknesses. Now I'm a literalist. I do believe that sin can be a sickness, a sin-sick soul. I believe there's verses that say that. But I also believe there are verses that talk about sickness as a human malady, something that is not cured. He sent his word and he healed them. He sent his word to heal us. And I believe that whenever the Bible speaks about sin, like in Isaiah 53, what Jesus did for us, 
Jesus said in Matthew 8 that it might be fulfilled, which was written by Isaiah the prophet, that himself took our diseases and bare our pain, bare our sicknesses. And 1 Peter 2.24 says, by whose stripes you're healed. Now, if I was healed, I am healed. Now, I'm going to say this because I know you'll understand why I'm saying that. I don't care what anybody on this planet thinks about that. CNN couldn't move me. ABC, CBS, MOK, IJN, Z, any of them, none of them. If I was healed, I am. Now, the devil inspires people just like he did. Well, it doesn't look like it. So who said I'm healed because I look like I'm healed? I'm healed because I believe it in my heart. I've cast my worry and my concern about healing and health and my future years. All of that you cast over on the Lord because he's not only given you a word for that, but a word that he watches over to what? To perform. All of this comes to us as a part of the picture at the communion table of his body. And finally, in closing, why the communion table? Because it's a time we stop and reflect on his atoning sacrifice. Second thing that we do is we discern his body. I'm here with you. Am I here with you? I heard what you said about me the other day. Do I forgive and treat him like Jesus would, or do I? Am I really here with you? Am I one with you all? Do I even like you? Do you even like these people, Hamilton? Come here. Yeah, I love them, Lord. They've been taking care of me for, is that why you like them? Because they take care of you? No. Is that why you love them? Because they would do something for you? No. I'm just glad I'm a part of the bigger picture. Where would I go on this planet if I wasn't here? I don't want to offend anybody out yonder. I do not know where I would go anywhere in the world if I was not here. I don't know where I would go. And the reason I came here in 81, other than God leading me here, was because the guy I traveled with said, you couldn't go anywhere else. You'll have to start your own church because we don't believe like anybody else. And here we are. Imperfect, needing a lot of work, but we're on our way. And the third thing was about the communion table is we're testifying to the fact that Jesus died and was raised again. The resurrection is a reality. He is coming back. He died, but he's coming back. That's what we do. Close your Bible and bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I want to thank you this morning for this hour, right now, this time, this moment, when we can participate in the communion the sharing of the bread and the cup. I don't know all the hearts in this room. I don't know the flaws and the hangups. You do. Nothing this morning is hidden from you about every single life that is in this room or those that are watching or those that listen. You know everything. But I ask that as a loving father desiring to make us one,
that you would deal with all of us for the rest of our lives that we might really learn what it means to be one together. For the one thing we look at this morning that made us one was Jesus Christ. His love for us, what he did for us. Work on us, Lord, that we might be to him what he wants. I ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.